Welcome inside Appalachia, I'm Caitlin Tan. Today we'll hear the story of a world-renowned steel pan drum maker from Trinidad who built instruments in a former coal mining town in West Virginia. His passion was, I want to teach these guys everything that possibly I know that they'll be better than me and leave a legacy. And we'll visit a park in Kentucky where mythical giants attract visitors from far and wide. They're beautiful and they're just like, you really can't believe it until you see them. We'll also travel to the Mine Wars Museum in southern West Virginia to learn about a part of Appalachian history that's long been misrepresented. As the daughter of a coal miner, it touches every corner of my heart. It's my people's story and they tell it with such grace and dignity and beauty. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Caitlin Tan. We start off our episode today in an arboretum in Kentucky. The Bernheim Arboretum and Research Forest has gigantic sculptures installed throughout. The wooden giants lounge among the trees and crouch at the water's edge. It looks straight out of a fairy tale. Sherry Lawson of WEKU recently took a trip there and brought back this story. Kids and adults seem to be having a great time on this sunny fall day in Claremont, Kentucky. People from several states, including the Bluegrass State, Ohio, Oregon, Georgia, Indiana, and Florida, have made a trip to Bernheim Arboretum and Research Forest in search of the so-called forest giants. Well, they're unique. I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like these. And it's cool that it's people that are building it, and it's very fascinating how they could build this. It's really incredible. We love the texture and the scale. It's really dramatic and whimsical, too. It's, they're beautiful, and they're just like you really can't believe it until you see them. That said, Broat, Trey Snall, Tony Mendezabel, and Julie Collinsworth. They've discovered the giant yellow footprints leading to the two-mile loop at Bernheim where a family of giants resides. Mama Lumari and her children, Little Niss and Little Elena, were named by their creator and renowned recycling artist Thomas Dambo. When these larger-than-life trolls were first installed in 2019, attendance at the park doubled, according to Jenny Zeller, arts and nature curator. She says the Denmark artist repurposed pallets and bourbon barrel staves that would otherwise have been thrown into a landfill. It's really kind of us asking the viewer to consider what we throw away, you know, on a daily basis and, and try to reimagine things into beautiful pieces of art. Dambo's fairy tale trolls can be found in locations around the world from Copenhagen to Maine, Colorado and Kentucky. Jenny Zeller says Dambo's also written a fairy tale, connecting the artwork from place to place. The folks at Bernheim recorded Dambo telling the tale. Little Lena and Nis and their mama, Lou Mari, they spent the winter together while the weather got better. People from all 50 states and 25 countries have flocked to Bernheim thanks to Dambo's work. The installation, called Forest Giants in a Giant Forest, is three very large sculptures. Zeller calls it an experience of discovery. Thomas's work is really meant to draw people into nature, and we have found that we, through the giants here at Bernheim, we've been able to draw people into parts of the natural world here at Bernheim that they just weren't exploring previously. Even though the artwork was installed in 2019, there's still a steady stream of visitors, like Stephanie Nall, who came with her sister-in-law and all their kids. They pose for pictures next to the pregnant giant, Mama Lumari. She's the largest giant who stretches out to more than 30 feet, says Jenny Zeller. Nall and the children are intrigued by Mama's lair, tucked behind her, where she stores her natural treasures like a large golden rock, a dragon skull, and a unicorn horn. I would say that captures the imagination of the children and myself too. I feel young being able to be in a real life storybook. <laughs> the 16,000 acre forest established in 1929 by Isaac Wolf Bernheim is a private nonprofit where art is a core value. It's become a haven for Marlene Broderick, especially during the pandemic. Wearing a wide-brimmed hat and mask, the Elizabethtown resident is standing near Little Niss, the giant looking at his reflection in Olmstead Ponds. Broderick says she's seen the giants at least ten times. It gives you a sense of the timelessness because this has been made with 
recycled material, the artistic creativity of it, the whimsy, the fun, the humor, it lifts your spirits. On the trail to the Giants, three cousins, two from Ohio, one from Florida, hike past the Holly Collection into the Sun and Shade Trail, where they cross the Lake Nevin Bridge on their way to Little Elena. Jennifer Stowe says these trolls were on her bucket list. You can see the face, you can see the expression in the face, you can feel the bending of the knee, and you can feel the angle of the foot, and it's just fabulous. There are more than 20 natural art installations throughout the forest. Arts and Nature curator Jenny Zeller says while the giants are a highlight, she encourages everyone to visit Spirit Nest, the newest art installation. As for the forest giants, Zeller says there's really no telling how long they'll be on display in the forest. Yeah, we will do what we can to keep them here, but yeah, at some point, it's just inevitable. Nature will take the work back. For Inside Appalachia at Bernheim Forest in Claremont, Kentucky, I'm Sherry Lawson. You've heard the steel drum. It's a quintessential Caribbean instrument. It's in calypso and reggae, and it also shows up in all kinds of pop music. But here's a surprise. Some of the best steel drums in the world are made in West Virginia. People call them the Stradivarius of the steel drum. Folkways reporter Zach Harold has the story. It takes about 40 hours of work to turn this into this. And that transformation takes place, believe it or not, in an old storefront in Osage, West Virginia, population 395. This is the home of Manette Musical Instruments, maker of world-renowned steel pan drums. We're in the workshop with Keith Moon, who's working to tune what's known as a triple guitar steel pan drum. Down here, it's rolling flat. The octave above that is going sharp a little bit. Each of the company's five drum builders and tuners has his own small workshop. Aside from a few personal effects, they're all pretty much the same. They've got toolboxes full of hammers customized for building steel drums. They have propane torches to soften up the steel when it needs to be a little more pliable. And they've got these super sensitive instrument tuners. Keith's using his now to make sure all the notes on this drum are in perfect pitch. But there's one workshop around here where the hammers don't ring anymore. This room has been mostly untouched for three years, ever since its owner left and never returned. This room once belonged to Ellie Minette, the founder of this company, the father of the modern steel drum. This is where he built instruments during the last years of his life. Uh, some of this stuff he was just tinkering around with. Ron Justice, a friend of Ellie's who helped him start the company, gave me a tour. Oh, we put are... some of this, but this is just the way he walked out. It's the way it was when he left. Ellie's red toolbox and blue propane torch are still here. His hammers are laid out on the workbench, alongside a stack of promotional posters. On the back wall are some newspaper and magazine clippings. Read them and you'll learn how Ellie, when he was growing up in Trinidad in the 1930s and 40s, fell in love with steel pan music. He got what people in Trinidad call the jumpy, when pan music takes hold of your soul and won't let go. He started playing in local bands when he was 11, and as he got older, formed his own group called the Invaders. This is from their 1961 record, Trinidad Wizards of the Steel Drum. Even more than playing, Ellie's focus was on building steel drums. His parents were not enthusiastic, especially after he dropped out of high school to focus on his drum building full-time. Although the steel drum is now Trinidad's national instrument, in those days, pan men were viewed as ne'er-do-wells. They call you a vagabond, they call you a bad John, and they call you no ambition. That's Ellie from a 2004 documentary called The Stradivarius of Steel, The Ellie Minette Story talking about that time in his life. And they don't want to see you. So why are you doing this? You understand? And was something was driving me to do it. And there was some inner sense that was saying, you keep going, you just keep going. You're going to make this work. And he did make it work. 
As he continued to build drums, he began to make significant innovations in the instrument. Early versions of pan drums were made from lightweight aluminum cans. Ellie was the first to build instruments using a 55-gallon steel drum. And the early drums also had domed tops. Ellie was the first to realize the tonal potential of a concave top, essentially inventing what we think of when we think of a steel drum. But there was a problem. Steel barrels cost money, and Ellie didn't have any money. So he started stealing his materials from a nearby U.S. naval base. Ellie's protege, Chandler Bailey, told me how that went. Um, he timed the guards going around, uh, patrolling the, the, the base, swam out into the ocean, past the breakers, and came back on, threw a couple of barrels into the ocean, swam them back onto shore, and he had a cold chisel on his bike, and he just chopped them off so that he, had, so that he could fit five or six on his bike, and then rode the 11 miles back to Port of Spain. This eventually caught up with Ellie. Some American MPs showed up at his door one day and took him back to the base. Um, didn't know what was going on. and, and uh, It's at this point someone hands him a phone. But it was the commander of the, of the Atlantic Fleet and says, uh, I know that you've been stealing my drums. I'll make a deal with you. I'll, even, I'll give you drums. You have to make the U.S. Navy a steel band. So Ellie flew to Puerto Rico to build the U.S. Navy some steel pan drums. You're absolutely right. That is the sound of guys in white Navy uniforms playing Stars and Stripes Forever on steel pan drums. This was the early 1960s. It was Ellie's first exposure to the United States, and it ushered in the next chapter of his steel drum legacy. In the 1960s and 70s, steel pan drums were gaining popularity in American music thanks to artists like Harry Belafonte, Liberace, and Pete Seeger. And as a result, universities and high schools started forming steel bands. But you couldn't just go to your neighborhood music store and buy a set of steel pan drums. You still can't. If a school wanted a set of drums, they would call Ellie, who would tell them how many 55-gallon barrels to order. And a few weeks later, he'd roll up with a toolbox full of hammers. But before he left for the next school, Ellie would give a workshop to teach people how to play his instruments. And that was his life for over 20 years. Traveling the United States, giving school kids the jumbie everywhere he went, like a Trinidadian Pod Piper. Ellie's travels eventually led him to Morgantown, West Virginia. In 1991, Phil Faini, the head of West Virginia University's percussion program, ordered some of Ellie's drums. Ellie built them somewhere else, but when he came to deliver them, he gave a clinic at the music school. Chandler Bailey happened to be in that class. Faini saw how much, how the rapport that Ellie had with students and how much joy he got out of, uh, uh, of talking about what it, what, it, what it was he did. He took Ellie to, to the Kroger and bought some Dove bars and, and gave Ellie, you know, they're sitting there eating their ice cream outside of the Creative Arts Center. And, and he said, what do you think about coming on here for a semester? It was quite the feather in the music program's cap, having the Stradivarius of steel on staff. But there was something in it for Ellie, too. In all those years he had traveled the country, whenever he'd go back to a school where he had taught people how to build and play the steel drum, he found they had forgotten most of what they had learned. Ellie, now in his 60s, realized that teaching at WVU would give him an opportunity to work with students long term, to pass on his craft in a way that was impossible to do as a roving pan man. So one semester turned into two, and two into four, until eventually Ellie became a permanent fixture in the university music department. I was finishing up school, and he said, why don't you come downstairs and learn how to do this? And at that point, we were in the basement of the Creative Arts Center. And uh, he put a hammer in my hand and said, make that four inches deep, and he went away on a two-week tuning trip. And uh, I spent two weeks trying to make that so, like, the prettiest four-inch bowl I could. And he came back and he said, that's great. And he picks up one of the largest hammer he's got and he says, now you got to do this. And he just goes at it and beats it and beats it. And that's when I understood that, like, I don't see it yet. Building steel drums doesn't take a lot of super expensive tools. It just takes a lot of expertise and practice. 
these instruments are far more complex than they appear. You can have up to 33 notes on a single steel drum head. Now, that might not seem like a big deal, but think about it like this. When you hit a note on a piano, you are striking a set of strings tuned specifically to play that note and that note alone. All the notes you aren't playing stay quiet because they're dampered with this felt pad. But on a steel pan drum, the whole head is vibrating whenever you strike a single note. That makes things incredibly difficult, especially when it comes time to tune a drum. Every single time you hit one note, something happens to the note beside it or in front of it or around it. It's wildly frustrating and... That hurts my head. It, right. <laughs> but it is one of the most... Um, so yeah, building steel drums isn't just something you do as a fun weekend project. This craft requires years of apprenticeship with a master, and Ellie was finally able to offer that kind of apprenticeship once he settled in Morgantown and began working with guys like Keith and Chandler. Here's Ellie's friend and business partner, Ron Justice, again. His passion was not how much can I make off of a steel drum. His passion was, I want to teach these guys everything that possibly I know that they'll be better than me and leave a legacy. In 2013, Ellie was getting ready to hang up his hammers when another steel drum obsessed kid entered his life. Tune on the back, which would be a G. You would have a second octave, which would be that note. Ryan Roberts grew up in Virginia Beach. He got the jumbie in middle school, learning to play on a set of Manette steel pans his school inherited from who else but the U.S. Navy. Pan is the only thing that will be on my mind 24 7. When it came time to enroll in college, there was really only one choice. Ryan wanted to study at the feet of the master. So Ellie put off retirement and over the next five years, stuck around the shop to continue teaching Ryan and the rest of the crew as much as he could about his beloved steel pans. Because he would walk around and go in all of our rooms as they're working, you know, knocking on the door, coming in. He'll, like Keith said, he'll tell you straight up if, if, if that's a good note or a bad note. Then he'll go to the next room and the next room, make his rounds. And then he'd go back in his room and just work on whatever he's working on. And even though, you know, he was in his 90s, he was still in charge. That was the way it was. And he would sign off on everything that went out of here. Up until the day he passed, Ellie was always talking about what he could do with each of us and how, like, if he had another month, do you can you imagine what, how much more information I could put in someone's head? But then Ellie's health took a turn for the worse. His apprentices, who'd become family by this point, would take him to the grocery store and to doctor's appointments. They helped him around his house, and they were with him in the hospital as his life ebbed away. Ellie Minette died in August 2018 at Ruby Memorial Hospital in Morgantown, West Virginia. He was 90 years old. But his presence is still felt at the company that bears his name. Keith has picked up where Ellie left off and continued to train Ryan. Chandler is carrying on another piece of Ellie's legacy. He recently opened a studio next to the drum factory where, five days a week, kids and adults alike come to learn the steel drum. Picture your high school band room, but instead of saxophones and trombones, it's filled wall to wall with different sizes of steel pan drums. This is his Monday night band, consisting of eight grown-ups. They're learning the old surf rock tune, Penetration. The one statement he always said was, uh, what does it profit a man to keep what he knows to himself? And I, I think that's always in the back of, of our heads um, of how we can continue to make the art form better and continue to... Um, provide instruments to people as the art form con is continually growing. For Inside Appalachia, this is Zach Harold in Osage, West Virginia, steel drum capital of the United States. 
Jesse Wright with 100 Days in Appalachia contributed to this story. After the break, we'll talk with a man who treks hundreds of miles to seek out long-lost varieties of heirloom apples. West Virginia, I call it my wild goose chase state because I've, I've gone to so many places where people told me about apple trees used to be. They're not there. <laughs> You're listening to Inside Appalachia. I'm Caitlin Tan. We'll be right back. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. Welcome back inside Appalachia. I'm Caitlin Tan. We are nearing peak fall season in Appalachia. Throughout the region, the colors are popping and apples are ripening. There's nothing like that first crisp bite of an apple picked off a wild tree. That's why I wanted to talk to Tom Brown. He's somewhat of an apple legend based in central North Carolina. He's dedicated his retirement years to finding and cultivating lost heirloom apple varieties across Appalachia. We hopped on the phone to talk apples, and I started off by asking him what his title is. An apple detective. <laughs> well, I, what I like to do is I like to search for them. I, if I ever won the lottery, I would just pay somebody to do the nursery and the orchard, and I just like to hunt for them. That's what I like to do. That, that's the fun part, yes. And how do you know if you come across an apple tree that, or a type of apple that you haven't seen before? Like, since you have identified over a thousand different types of apples, I would think it would get hard to keep them all straight. Well, uh, about half the ones that I've found, the uh, owner knew the name. And from what information I had from old catalogs and what other people had told me, and, and the other times I had to identify it. And... uh I have like thousands of contacts and, and sometimes people will tell me about an apple, you know, that they remember and then maybe 15 miles away, somebody will have a tree with an unknown apple and it will fit the description of what the other person told me and, uh, you know, then they can identify it. So in a way, I mean... It was pretty lucky you started doing this to document a lot of that knowledge. I mean, otherwise a lot of that knowledge could have been lost. Yes, it it was just a fun thing to do. I mean, you know, and everybody likes apples, so it's unusual to meet somebody that's not cooperative. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Tom, I'm also curious, so, so, so what happens, like, on a day where you have decided you want to go searching for apples, what what does that look like? Sometimes, you, you know, I have had uh, some inkling that a certain apple was mentioned in a, a certain area. On, on a non-COVID year, I might go to 14 festivals a year where I have a, a big apple display, you know, actual apples, and, and people will come by and look at the apples and tell me about things they remember or trees they have or other trees they know about. And uh, this this man came by and mentioned an, an Evans Pippin and some vague reference to an area where it was located. I, d- I decided to just go to that area and just drive around and see if I could get lucky. There was a man happened to be on his front porch he had a whole bunch of old apples he had a stroudian apple and a white pippin or he also called it a grizzle and he knew where a ridge pippin was and an evans pippin and uh 
sometimes you're 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 lucky like that. Gosh, that's that's like detective work. <laughs> I've sort of had that idea that if I'm not finding it, it doesn't mean it's not out there. I'm just not hunting hard enough. But West Virginia, I call it my wild goose chase state. Because <laughs> I've, I've gone to so many places where people told me about apple trees used to be. They're not there. <laughs> I've, I've gone to maybe six places looking for the upside down apple. The upside down apple. What is that? Well, it was an apple that was uh, in in West West Virginia, and it was mentioned south of Camp Creek, and then uh, in Lincoln County. And I, I don't. I actually don't even have a a real good description, and I don't know why it was called upside down. <laughs> Tom, what? Why do you think we should care about heirloom apples? Well, it's part of our agricultural heritage it's it's just like trying to preserve any of these rare species and in the past they had a lot of uh, unusual uses for apples and there are a lot of you know important genes and characteristics that we ought to preserve do you have a standout i mean it's probably hard you've tried so many apples but do a few come to mind that are some of your favorite apples that you found and and can you describe them to us oh oh gosh <laughs> i to, to, to me there's no not a, such a thing as a as a bad apple with, with one exception that there was a a friend i went to his house and up in uh maggie valley north carolina and he showed me an apple that he had found and it was a day glow green and a day glow purple. I mean, it was the most fascinating <laughs> color combination I'd ever seen. But it had the most incredible bad taste. I mean, you, you know, I, I remember that taste today. I mean, it was it was incredible. It was not that you wouldn't slightly not prefer it it was just it was terrible (laughs) (laughs) but that was out of the ordinary usually i've never experienced one quite like that so far tom brown has found more than 1200 apple varieties but he says there are easily 7,000 in the u.s so if you know where to find a rare apple let tom know at his website applesearch.org This year is the 100th anniversary of the Battle of Blair Mountain. In recent episodes, we've talked a lot about our region's history of labor struggles. There's no better place to experience that history than at the West Virginia Mine Wars Museum. As Jessica Lilly reports, the newly expanded museum teaches about this often discarded chapter in U.S. history. On a warm September morning, ATV riders roll into Mate One fresh off the Hatfield and McCoy trails. The dirt paths in the backwoods of southern West Virginia brought Ryan Logue all the way from Kansas City, Missouri. The fact that you can just ride your ATVs just right up to the front door here and nobody cares if you're muddy, they just say, come on in. And the trails, you really have to see them for yourselves. The Mine Wars, if you're not familiar, is a time of tension and bloodshed in American history when coal miners demanded better working conditions and fair wages. Logue heard about the Mine Wars Museum on YouTube. This was kind of a sidestep that uh, that we wanted to take just to kind of see this, and the fact that we could just ride up pretty much right to the front door um, is just incredible. The Mine Wars Museum opened in 2015, smack dab in the middle of Mate One, Last year, the museum moved to a more spacious location just across the street. The United Mine Workers of America, or UMWA, purchased the building for the museum. Inside the two front double doors is a display of red bandanas to the left. To the right is a mural of the museum's logo. And straight ahead, a petite woman sitting at a desk. A movie poster for the motion picture Mate One hangs over her brown hair. My name's Kim McCoy, and I was born and raised here in Maitland, West Virginia. McCoy is the shop manager and tour guide here at the museum. 
I'm the daughter of a coal miner, the granddaughter of a coal miner. Both my grandfathers were coal miners. I was born right up the railroad tracks here at the Stony Mountain Coal Camp. That's where I spent my holidays with my grandparents was in an old camp, old coal camp house. So when my grandfather would talk about the mine wars, you could hear the passion in his story. And I remember learning these stories from him growing up. Logan and his friends take off their ATV helmets as McCoy guides them through the museum. Here in the museum, what you learn about is the Paint Creek Cabin Creek strike that happened between 1912 and 1914. It was the first time that the coal miners rebelled against the coal company owners on Paint Creek. What would happen would be the coal company owners would go up to Ellis Island and they would bring in immigrants off the boat. They would promise these immigrants the American dream. But what they got was as close to slavery as you could get without it being called slavery. She uses that description because everything was controlled by the coal companies. When the immigrants arrived in the southern coal fields, they were given a job, doing backbreaking work underground. They were given a place to live, even places to go to church. The workers didn't own any of it. The coal companies did. They were paid in scrip that could only be used at coal company-owned stores. Often, children were expected to work in the mines, too. The museum has a photo of children just outside of a coal mine. The notion of working so young sticks with Logue throughout the tour. Like I, I couldn't even imagine at eight years old being told, like, hey, this is what you're going to do for the rest of your life, and it's going to be absolutely terrible, and we basically own you. The museum even has a collection of recordings. Visitors simply push a button to hear stories from UMWA President Cecil Roberts and other voices from the coal fields, like this one. Grace Jackson, who marched with Mother Jones on Cabin Creek when she was 12 years old. Those poor scabs, they were innocent. They didn't know nothing about the strike here. It was the companies and the co-operators. They were the guilty ones. In one room, there's a wooden post holding up a white canvas tent. It's like the one striking miners lived in after being evicted from coal company houses. It's crazy just hearing everything, like the living conditions of these people, and all they wanted was a chance to kind of just live a fair life, and they were just kind of owned by this company. Along with ATV riders, the museum has hosted elementary and even college students. Bobby Starnes teaches Appalachian Studies at Berea College. One of the classes she teaches is actually called The Mine Wars. Her father was a union man. Like Kim McCoy, to Starnes, the stories of the coal fields go much deeper than a tale of organizing. As a teacher of Appalachian Studies, it's an amazing resource. As the daughter of a coal miner, it touches every corner of my heart. It's my father's story. It's my family's story. It's my people's story. And they tell it with such grace and dignity and beauty. Starnes and her students traveled about three hours from Berea, Kentucky, to Matewan, West Virginia, to visit the museum. She says it's been an important part of her curriculum. It, it just adds so much depth and understanding. When you can put your hand on a piece of script that some miner was paid with, and know that your hand is on top of the hand that earned that money by going into those mines. That means something. And we, we talk about that. We talk about the difference between looking at it in pictures and holding it in your hand. Starnes even volunteered over the summer to go through hundreds of newspapers and sources to help with archiving. She couldn't help but to read them all. After reading those stories... It becomes easy to, to demonize and marginalize people who are, quote, savage. And that's a word that was used a lot in, in the documents. Part of it is that those stories were stories told by powerful people. I mean, who do you think owned the New York Times? Who do you think owned the major newspapers in the country? It was the same people who owned the, the, uh, the railroads and the coal mines. There is a, this image of us that is pervasive and that, that we have to speak out against and clarify who we really are and what we really stand for. The Mine Wars Museum, Starn says does just that. It gives context and shares the stories of the coal fields to perhaps give meaning behind some of the behaviors of violence 
so many years ago. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Jessica Lilly in Matewan, West Virginia. On our website, we've posted links where you can check out all of our ongoing coverage of the West Virginia Mine Wars, including an interview with Sarah Lynch Thomason, a ballad singer and folklorist from Asheville, North Carolina. Sarah's Blair Pathways Project tells the history of the West Virginia Mine Wars through music. You can find that story and more at wvpublic.org. Next, we head up to Pittsburgh to meet the Dump Busters, volunteers who clean up illegal dump sites in the area. The Allegheny Front's Kara Hall Soppel tagged along one Saturday as they tackled mounds of trash on a hillside. The cleanup starts when a truck pulls up to deposit a small dumpster at the top of the stairs. Other equipment includes large plastic trash cans and lots of gloves. Danny Kramer, land-based program coordinator, goes over the safety rules with a new volunteer as people arrive. So the first rule of dump busters is you're not allowed to get hurt. Um, The most common injury is stepping on a nail or stepping on something sharp. Any closed containers of liquid, keep them closed, don't dump them out. It's probably something nasty or dangerous. So we just fill the cans with trash, we weigh the cans on a scale, and we write down the weight on a notebook that I've got over there somewhere, and then we just dump it. Into the dumpster. Volunteer Lisa Goldstein grabs a can and immediately starts to fill it, but she's a little grossed out by the trash and the worms. I picked up a dirty diaper. I saw it, I confronted it, and I made peace with it. Honestly, this is the first time I've ever really done something of this, I want to say, for lack of a better term, magnitude. So, uh, yeah, it's just, for me personally, it's a big deal. I think it's good to have this kind of response. That's Hillary Steffes, who works part-time with Dump Busters. Her overalls are already muddy as she climbs the steps with a heavy black plastic bag. Shingles are very popular. (laughs) Like renovation debris. It's just heavy. And so when you're doing renovation, if you are renting a dumpster, the weight does matter and affects the price. So we get a lot of like bags of plaster. Sometimes it's just concrete. The household trash is a little more perplexing. You know, when you see a littered area, you're more likely to add litter to it. I think that's how this much household trash ends up here. One person misses garbage day and chucks it and it just kind of adds up after that. Um, And this stuff's been building up for years. I don't want to ask too many negative questions, but I was going to ask if you ever feel overwhelmed by all of this, because you see it every day. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really hard to not feel overwhelmed and bummed out about it. It gives me hope to know that other people are willing to do this in their free time for free. Like, it's gross hard work. Oh, how seasonal. It's Halloween butter-flavored popcorn. Larissa Gula from Carnegie has been volunteering with Allegheny Cleanways for about three years. Litter cleanup is something that my mother was really passionate about. I guess we turn into our parents in the end. (laughs) In her can are broken CDs, takeout wrappers, and dozens of bits of plastic. I think people act like litter shouldn't be a thing, but I also think that in reality our system just is not designed to keep up with the amount of waste we produce. Someone unearths the bottom half of a toilet. Is it pink? Oh, it's so pretty. I'll take it. 25.5 pounds worth of toilet. Stephis weighs a can with a blue plastic baseball bat sticking out of the top. Sometimes household trash gets here because of evictions. So I don't really get too offended by people's personal behavior in regards to dumping sometimes, because I know there's obstacles that are causing it, especially like baby, baby stuff, diapers, baby food, toys. Danny Kramer says dumping happens when something is difficult or expensive to get rid of the right way. It's free to dump on a hillside if you don't get caught. So I think there just need to be a lot more, a lot more resources. The three hour shift is just about over. It looks so much better already. There you can like envision what it'll look like in the springtime. 
And Pittsburgh's such a beautiful city and every neighborhood has its own special hidden nooks and crannies and everyone deserves to have a clean and beautiful place to live. Um, so I think about it all the time. <laughs> the grand total for the day is just over a ton of garbage. The dumpster will be emptied at Pittsburgh's Department of Public Works, but the dump busters will be back again tomorrow to push further into the wooded area at the sides of the steps. For the Allegheny Front, I'm Kara Holsoppel. Pittsburgh isn't alone in its battle against illegal dumping and littering. Over the border in Morgantown, West Virginia, there are a lot of abandoned campsites along the rivers. And in them are people's left-behind belongings and trash. Rain washes this stuff right into the waterways, contaminating river ecosystems. Two years ago, I reported this story about a man who's taken it upon himself to clean up the trash using unconventional methods. I'm standing with Zoma Archambo on the banks of the Monongahela River. We're at one of his trash cleanup sites. To get here, we biked about 10 minutes from Morgantown on a paved trail. But the last stretch, we pointed our bikes down a narrow, hidden path into the dense green bushes. All right, here we are. It's a hot, muggy day. The spot we're at has a small, sandy beach, which is rare. Much of the Monongahela River is lined by thick brush and mud. The area used to be an informal camp spot. Zoma found it abandoned, with trash covering the ground in every direction. It's almost all picked up now. There's some muddy clothes, a couple hypodermic needles, and roof shingles. The nearby stream flowing into the river erodes the dirt, exposing some of this older trash. Yeah, there's still trash. It'll be eroding out for years. Before showing me around, Zoma grabs a bag of raw oats from his backpack and feeds the minnows. Do you you always try to feed them a little when you're here? Yeah, I can't help it. Zoma loves living things. At one point in our interview, a stray cat emerges from the bushes and walks over to him. Hey, buddy. You're really lonely. Zoma has volunteered the past year and a half to cleaning up the trash sites along the rivers. Although he wants places to look clean, he says he cares more about the impact of trash on the ecosystem. I strongly don't believe in, you know, of course, microplastics in the ocean. You know, we have a tremendous problem right now in the world because of it. Microplastics are the size of a sesame seed and nearly impossible to clean, according to the National Ocean Service. And they are toxic to aquatic life and birds. Microplastics can form from littered plastic products, like a grocery bag, that over time break down into smaller and smaller pieces, eventually getting washed into our waterways. Yeah, that stuff does not belong in our rivers. Zoma is unassuming. He's lanky and tall, almost six and a half feet tall. He has a gray goatee and a head full of salt and pepper hair. He typically wears a pair of jeans cut off at the knees with a loose cotton t-shirt. Zoma's always observing. While he's cleaning up abandoned camps, he often thinks about who the people were, why they had the things they did. Memories and such. There's something, some reason those people carried that object with them. But it's also personal for him. In the past 10 years, Zoma says he's lost 25 friends to drugs and suicide. And so cleaning these sites where people were likely suffering from addiction is a healing process. So to help, I think, erase that so it's just not out here, just to try to clear it up. And I like these places. Uh, West Virginia is a beautiful place, and it just doesn't deserve to be trashed this way. Zoma grew up on the West Coast, but he settled in Morgantown 21 years ago. He says he's seen the city grow, and in the past couple of years, he's noticed more trash and a different kind of trash. These sites used to be full of beer bottles. And now the transition now is to needles. And this is a trend other organizations have noticed, too. Jonathan Sweet is the operations manager for Friends of Decker's Creek. The almost 25-mile-long tributary of the Monongahela River flows through Morgantown. We come in with tongs and a sharps container and get rid of them, and they are definitely common, and it's, it's really unfortunate. Friends of Decker's Creek dedicates a lot of time to cleaning up trash along the waterway. Just a couple weeks ago, Jonathan cleaned up a site with a mattress pad, clothing, and blankets. He says the trash is a river ecosystem hazard. It's bad for all the aquatic life that lives in the creek. 
And when you have a, a clean area, I feel like people are less likely to litter and dump their trash there as opposed to if it's already a really nasty trash-filled area. And that's Soma's thinking, too. The first site he cleaned was in Morgantown at Whitmore Park last year. There were over 300 hypodermic needles, three tents, several futons, and other trash completely covering the grass. I remember returning, like, two weeks later, just hoping somebody else had cleaned this up, and nobody had. So he attached a small trailer to his bike, which he calls Big Red, and loaded up shovels, rakes, garbage bags, a machete for the thick brush, and he got to work. We had to just to uh, load stuff up on tarps to drag it out, like all the bedding, and just, we couldn't put that in bags, of course, and we just made big giant mounds of clothes, just mounds of clothes, just amazing. A lot of the sites Zoma cleans alone, but friends occasionally come and help haul the trash bags away. Zoma uses 33 and 55 gallon sized trash bags, and just this year he's filled 100. He likes to document the sites, taking before and after photos and videos, and then posting them to Facebook. Zoma and I bike to his most recent cleanup site. This is where we're going right here. Monongahela River, and it's roughly the size of half a football field, with overgrown trees creating almost a roof. Well, this place is not perfect yet, but I tell you one thing is missing, and that's 25 bags of trash. There's still some work to do, but Zoma's gathered all the remaining trash into piles. There's a Disney princess backpack, a Barbie with blonde hair, a chocolate milk bottle, Hanes underwear, and a moldy, medium-sized brown teddy bear. I'll remove it sooner than later, or later than sooner, I'm not too sure. <laughs> there were 40 teddy bears that Zoma already threw out. Originally, he'd only found two hypodermic needles at this site, but as we're talking, Zoma uses a stick to rustle around mm. in the dead leaves. Number three. Number four. Well, so much for that. Ultimately, he finds 18 needles within one square foot. 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. Zoma uses the chocolate milk bottle to carry the needles out. I don't think it's big enough. So primarily, Zoma picks up trash on the banks of the rivers. But he does do some trash cleanup in the water. He's focused mostly on Decker's Creek. It amazes me just how shredded, like, the plastic bags will be. It's already working its way to being microplastic, and it's not even hit the major rivers yet. He's found bicycles, grocery carts, parts of bridges, furniture, old railroad ties, and a lot of old coal slag. Zoma uses a four-prong hook to pull out larger trash. It's about the size of a tennis ball. That's a grappling hook. But I use the pull shopping carts out of the river or creek or whatever. But for smaller magnetic trash, he uses a powerful magnet that's about the size of a grapefruit. We are walking along the banks of Decker's Creek. A big thunderhead is rolling in. Zoma has his magnet. It's attached to a long rope, which allows him to throw it in the river and reel it back in. Kind of like fishing. This is 65 feet of rope. I can throw the whole thing. The water is dark, and Zoma has cleaned up this location before. He doesn't expect to catch anything. Oh, there's something on there. Yeah, it sure is, isn't it? It's a steel ring of some sort. Zoma puts the little bit of slag and metal we find in a yellow bucket. He'll throw it out later. There are hundreds of miles of waterways just in Monongalia County. Trash could potentially be everywhere. Even the spots Zoma has cleaned eventually get re-trashed. He says it's almost expected. But standing on the banks of the Monongahela River at one of his cleanup sites, Zoma smiles. He looks at the beach that was once covered in trash, and he's proud of the work he's done. I reported that story with Zoma Archambault back in 2019. Zoma says there hasn't been as much trash to clean up lately, that COVID slowed things down. But he is still riding Big Red, his bicycle, all around Morgantown. We hit on a lot of topics today. 
giants in Kentucky, steel drums in West Virginia, lost heirloom apples, people cleaning up their towns to make them a better place. And my takeaway is that we're reclaiming Appalachia. Whether it's through art, community service, history, you all are reclaiming what it means to be Appalachian. Until next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Jake Exerces Fussell, Sarah Lynch Thomason, Ryan Roberts, and Dinosaur Burps. Roxy Todd is our producer. Jade Arthur Haltz is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Andrea Billups. We had editing assistance this week from Liz Reed and the PMJA Editor Corps. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Twitter at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at WVPublic.org. Visit WVPublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to sign up for our newsletter. There you can also subscribe or download all of our stories or look for the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.